All right, good morning. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Romans 1, 15 through 17. As I was getting ready for this morning's message, one of the themes I noticed in the text was how important motivations are. How the right why can empower and transform almost any particular what. Think about it. Almost any task, no matter how difficult or frustrating, can be changed when you have the right motivation going forward, right? Think about an extremely unhealthy person, maybe someone who doesn't exercise, doesn't eat well, heavy smoker, heavy drinker, and imagine they decide for a New Year's resolution that they're going to cut some unhealthy habits and try to feel a little bit better. I mean, good for them, right? How long do you think that resolution is going to last? Now imagine the same person, but they're in a doctor's office. And the physician comes to them and tells them that unless they make radical changes to their life, they are going to die within the next two years. Which of those two motivations do you think is going to be stronger? Motivations matter. And if they matter so much in the world of the ordinary, how much more do they matter in the world of Christianity? Because in the ordinary world, we can't know a person's motivations. We can see their intentions, their actions, We can hear them say what they believe their motivations are, but at the end of the day, we don't know a person's motivations. But in the world of Christianity, we serve the God who knows the hearts and the minds of men and women. He's the judge of the secrets of the hearts of men, Romans chapter 2. And there's nowhere we can hide from his presence, Psalm 139. God knows us, and our motivations matter to him. And that's why when God gave us the scripture, he didn't just give us a rule book. Because he wants us to know not just what we're supposed to do, but why we do it. And that's what we're going to see in this passage, a gospel motivation for why we do evangelism and mission. Now, unless you're brand new here, you might be thinking, why do we need another mission sermon? We do them a lot. And I think the reason is that most of us didn't grow up in this church or churches like this. Most of us, if we came from a church, came from churches that either didn't talk about evangelism or mission, or they kind of treated it like the subject of financial giving. One of those things we all know we're supposed to do, and we all know we don't do as much as we should. Some of us came from moderately healthy churches, though, that taught on mission. And when they would teach, it would usually sound something like this. Tens of thousands of people all across the world die every day without knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior And they're not just in the far-off lands of Africa and Asia, but they're in our communities. They are our co-workers, our neighbors, our friends, and our family. But while the lost in the far-off reaches of the world have missionaries sent to them, you might be the one missionary sent into your community. You might be the only Bible that these people ever read, so if you love your neighbor, go and share the gospel with them. Now, I don't want to diminish the importance of those kind of messages. There's a place for them. The words are true. But when our evangelism is rooted in these kinds of teachings, our evangelism is going to come from a toxic place. It's going to be driven by feelings of guilt and shame that unless we're sharing the gospel all the time, then we aren't good and loving Christians. And for some time, that feeling of guilt will sustain you. But eventually, the sheer magnitude of the mission and our sheer inadequacy in following it will overwhelm us and will leave us either burnt out of Christianity or just apathetic. And so my hope for us in examining these passages is to show us the pulsing heartbeat behind mission. That if you're here and you're a Christian, 
You would be freed from an evangelism rooted in toxic places and see mission as a privilege and a joy. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're just visiting, you have questions about faith and God, there's something here for you too. My hope for you is that you would see Christians don't share the gospel out of a desire to manipulate you or control you or just take your money or because we're just intolerant bigots that can't stand people disagreeing with us. But because we believe Jesus Christ is the only hope for humanity. So with that, let's delve on in. Romans 1, 15 through 27. This is the word of the Lord. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the reading of God's word. Now, we're going to look at this passage under four movements. The disposition of mission, the power of mission, the scope of mission, and the heart of mission. And we're going to see how a right understanding of each of these addresses a toxic motivation that we have for mission. So we'll start with the disposition. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now when we talk about disposition, we're talking about character, the kind of person who's called into the work of mission. And thankfully, when we look at this letter by the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of God to the Gentile people, we can see a lot about his character just through the first several verses of chapter 1. We can see, for example, he's a man who takes his obligations seriously. He's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. We can see he's a man marked by thankfulness, that he thanks his God through Jesus Christ for all the people in Rome. We can see he's a prayerful man, that he always is mentioning the church in his prayers, and that he's a man who loves community, that he longs to see them, that they can be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, and that he's gracious. He longs to impart a spiritual gift to strengthen the church. But when we get to verse 15, we see a new attribute. He is eager. So I am eager to preach the gospel. Now, eagerness has to do with a disposition that's not only willing and desire, you know, willing to do something, but it desires to do something. Eagerness does not have to be told or guilted or driven. It's not only willing, it wants to. Unfortunately, though, eagerness can have a kind of youthful quality to it some, sometimes because it's easy to be eager when you're young, when your body's full of energy and strength and healing comes quickly and your whole life is ahead of you and you're not carrying baggage and the scars of life. It's far more difficult to be eager when you get older when your body feels like it's starting to fall apart, you're trying to muster up just enough energy just to face the day, and when wounds are slow to heal and you're carrying years' worth of, of baggage and hurts, and when you get there, eagerness can start to look rather idealistic and ignorant and, frankly, childish. But that's not what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he talks about being eager. After all, he's a student of the Scriptures. He knows the Old Testament stories, and he knows the stories of the prophets of God. None of them were esteemed or adored. The prophet Isaiah was told by God that he would be ignored. Daniel's thrown into a pit of lions. Jeremiah is mocked and rejected and left in a pit to starve to death. These weren't exceptions. These were the norm for God's prophets. Paul knew that to follow God was to suffer. He's also a student of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said that the world would hate his disciples 
because it first hated him, that it would deliver the disciples to tribulation, and it would kill them because of the name of Jesus. And Paul knew this because he used to be one of the people persecuting the church. We read in the book of Acts about Paul's life before he became a Christian, how he ravaged the church, how he arrested its members and sent them to prison. Paul knew that to follow God was to suffer. And lastly, he's a student of life. This is no 16-year-old who's still coming to terms with life. Paul's lived life, and he's carrying the scars of serving God in that life. We read in 2 Corinthians 11 how he's constantly beaten and betrayed, hurting and hungry, feeling the constant anxiety of his calling for the churches. This is not an idealistic, ignorant, childish eagerness. This is an eagerness that has counted the cost and is still ready and willing to serve in the mission of God. Now, why is this? Is this just Paul's natural tendency? Is he just a glutton for punishment? What is driving him to be so eager? And the answer comes in verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He is eager to preach the gospel for or because he is not ashamed of the gospel. Because family, the gospel is nothing to be ashamed of. The gospel is an announcement of good news, amen? For behold, I bring you good news, gospel of great joy that shall be for all the people. And what's that good news? It's the good news of salvation, that, Christ, that I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. In the gospel, God tells the condemned that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. To the shamed, God says that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. To the enslaved, God says, you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. To the lonely, God says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that same person, Jesus Christ, our God, would never leave us nor forsake us, and he would be with us always, even to the end of the age. To the dying, God says he will swallow up death forever, and to the hurting, that he will wipe away tears from all faces. The gospel of God is forgiveness to the damned, joy to the sorrowful, hope to the hopeless, freedom to the captive, power to the weak, and life to the dead, and the gospel is worth talking about. It's good news, amen? It's nothing to be ashamed of. So what's the disposition of mission? Eager and unashamed, because the gospel is worth proclaiming. And what does that mean for us? It means we're freed from an evangelism rooted in guilt and shame. Did you notice in the text that there's no I have to language? Only I get to language? Eager and unashamed are terms that scream, I want to do this. This is not the language of someone who's doing this in order to be a good Christian. This is not the language of someone who has been guilt-tripped by their pastor into sharing the gospel. This is not the language of someone who sees sharing the gospel as an unfortunate consequence of being a Christian. This is the language of delight and willing sacrifice. And I've seen what happens when you try to motivate the gospel through guilt. Several years ago, I interned with a campus ministry to go on mission to college students. And as part of the internship, I had to fill out an assessment of how I'd been spending my time as an intern to make sure I wasn't spending all my time at the local pizzeria and actually, you know, sharing the gospel. 
And one of the questions on the forum was, how many times did you share the gospel? With the expectation you should share five times a week. And my first response to that was to feel guilty. Like I wasn't a good Christian or a good missionary because I didn't meet that quota. I needed to try harder. I needed to do better. And it wasn't until I reminded myself that sharing the gospel is a privilege, not just a duty, and that my job is to be eager for opportunities, not create them, that I was able to get some kind of relief for the guilt. But when gospel conversations become goals to be met, and metrics to be filled, our evangelism will not be eager and unashamed, but instead it will be driven by guilt and shame out of a desire to meet the quota. And that's not the disposition of mission. The disposition of mission is eager and unashamed because the gospel is worth proclaiming. And that frees us from an evangelism rooted in guilt and shame. And what makes it worth proclaiming? Consider our second movement, the power of mission. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Now, people can be eager and unashamed for many reasons. Some good, some bad. But the basis of Paul's unashamed eagerness was his confidence that this is the power of God at work in his message. And our God is an awesome, all-powerful, all-sovereign God. Amen? Amen? Our God is in the heavens, the Bible says. He does everything he pleases. Is anything too hard for him? I've spoken, I'll bring it to pass, God says. I have purposed, and I will do it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. These verses show us that God has all power in his hands, nothing is too hard for him, and he will accomplish everything he intends without any help from us. Think about our Lord Jesus himself and the ways he's demonstrated his power. He commands the seas to be still and they're still. He commands the fig tree to perish, and it perishes. He commands the sick to be healed, and they're healed. The demon possessed to be freed, and they're freed. The blind to see, and the lame to walk, and the dead to rise, and so they do. Everything that God commands and intends, he brings about. And that same power, as we sang earlier on, is the power that is at work in the cause of our salvation. A power that will accomplish everything it intends. A power that requires no assistance, namely the power of God. We just got done singing earlier. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Why do we owe everything to him? Because he's responsible for everything. Salvation is of the Lord. And this truth is plastered all over the scriptures. Just look at Ephesians 1, this beautiful picture of what God has done, and try to see where in there we contribute anything. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Wherein there is anything that we contribute to our salvation? 
Nothing. Not one thing. This is the truth. I was depraved, but God in his glorious greatness sought me and bought me and calls me and keeps me. I was wicked, but he sought me. Not because of something in me or because God looked down the tunnel of time and said, yeah, that dude's becoming a Christian or wow, he's going to make such an impact for the kingdom. But because God is gracious and merciful. I was wicked and God bought me. And by his blood, Revelation says, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and has made them a kingdom and priests to our God. I was wicked, but he calls me with the same voice that created the world and gave life to the dust in order to make humanity, governs creation, calms the storm, and raises the dead. And that same voice says, repent, come, follow me. I was wicked and God keeps me. You know how I know this? Because if I let go of God in my weakness, God's got me, amen? But if my salvation depended on my clinging to God, hell would hold me. What God begins, God will complete. And Romans 8 gives us this amazing picture, again, of the power of God that's at work in our salvation. That the same people he knows from before the foundation of the world will be the same saints who walk with him in eternity. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So he knows them, he predestines them, he calls them, he will justify them, and he will glorify them. From beginning to end, God's going to bring his people home. His power is at work in the cause of our salvation. Now, did you really choose him? Yes. But you chose him because God first chose you. You love him because God first loved you. Your calling on him is the evidence that God has called on you. But the fact of the matter is, our salvation is of the Lord. The only thing that you and I contribute is that we get to be heralds of that message. We get to talk about the power of God. We get to talk about salvation. We get to be ambassadors for Christ. We get to share what God has done in our life. What's the power of mission? that God will accomplish everything he intends to for our salvation without any assistance from us. And what's that mean for us? It means we're freed from evangelism rooted in religion. Remember what Pastor Lewis taught us again and again and again. Sing along the, the song if you know it. Religion is, I do. Gospel is, you know, therefore I am. Gospel is, I am, therefore I... Now let's try it again. Gospel is, I am, therefore I, I do. And the reason he's taught us this again and again and again is because religion is our default mode of thinking. And sometimes it can be obvious to see. Like, you know, if I do enough good things to cover up the bad things, I'm a good person. But more often than not, religion can be far more subtle and destructive. And sometimes it'll sneak into our evangelism and say things like, you can't share the gospel until you're ready. And we'll listen to that whisper and we'll begin to panic. We'll start saying things like, I can't share the gospel until I, you know, uh, get better at dealing with people, um, get better at sharing my testimony, 
become more eloquent, know more Bible, know more theology, know how to answer questions about the faith, know Christian high theory and how the gospel speaks to the time, and the list just goes on and on and on. Now, granted, all of these things are important. We should learn these things, and they're a massive benefit to our evangelism. But that's the rub. They're a benefit, not a prerequisite to mission. The basis of our evangelism is not our ability to speak eloquently. It's the gospel's ability to save powerfully. And when we start attaching qualifications before we allow ourselves to share the gospel, what we're essentially saying is we don't believe the gospel is the power of God. It needs something. It needs me. I need to say the right thing. I need to argue the right way. I need to contribute something because nothing says that God's, you know, complete God's power like the addition of me to it. But if the gospel is the power of God to save, then I'm freed from the need to have to make people believe. I'm freed from the need to know everything before I'm allowed to share the gospel. I'm, I'm freed from these false standards and the shame that comes from failing to meet them. The power of mission is that God will accomplish everything he intends without any assistance from us for our salvation. And this will free us from an evangelism rooted in religion. And who has this power been applied to? Consider our third movement, the scope of mission. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. Now, the question becomes in this passage, who has the power of God been applied to? Who is this power for? And the text answers, it's for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. Now, when I was younger, this passage really confused me. I didn't get it. Why should the power of God be for a Jewish person first? I mean, isn't that being partial and biased? Isn't that denying that the church is going to be made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation? Why should the gospel be for a Jewish person first and not anyone else? But what I didn't understand is that that's not the offensive part of this passage. After all, it's only natural that Jesus is going to be for the Jew first. He's the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. That's why at Kings, when we're talking through Old Testament epistles like Isaiah, we call this series the Gospel According to Isaiah, because it's about Jesus, amen? He's the hero of the story. Paul would write this later on, Romans 9, 4 through 5, that they're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Jesus is the promised, the promised seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. Genesis chapter 3. He's the sacrificial lamb who would bear the sins of his people, pretty much the entire book of Leviticus. As Matthew's gospel tells us, he's heir to the promises of, of David and Abraham. Of course Jesus is going to be for Jewish people first. They're the ones that should see him first. He's all over the pages of the Old Testament. So that's not the offensive part of the passage. The true offense of the passage is to say, and also for the Greek, because while it might be natural for God to come for his own people, the passage is telling us he's coming for a people who weren't his own. We expect parents to take care of their own kids. But Jesus is not only coming for his kids, but he's coming for the kids that nobody wants. 
So when Paul writes that this is also for the Greeks, he's trying to contrast them to the Jews. So if the Jews were close to the things of God, the Greeks were far away. If the Jews were included in the promises of God, the Greeks had no part of the promise. This means that when the Apostle Paul writes that the gospel is the power of God and it's been applied to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek, what he's saying in modern terms is that the power of God is for those near and far, inside and outside. The gospel is for anybody, amen? The wise, the foolish, the strong, the weak, the young, the old. The gospel is for the obvious sinner and the deceptive saint. No one is outside the need or the reach of the gospel. So what's the scope of mission? The gospel is for those near and far, inside and outside. And what's that mean for us? It means that we're freed from an evangelism rooted in prejudice. Now, prejudice can be a a terrible enemy for our evangelism, and it will manifest itself usually one of two ways. The first is to be prejudiced against people who are far away. Now, these are the the obvious sinners. These are the murderers, the, the drug addicts and dealers, the rapists, the thief, and so on. And we can start to believe in our heart that these people that these people are too far gone to be saved or that they're not allowed to be anywhere near us. Now, we may not say that with those exact words. We may decry that publicly. But when our churches and our ministries look nice and, and neat with no socially awkward or hurting people whose confessions of sin might, you know, raise an eyebrow or two, what we're communicating is that these people have no place in our church. I think, for example, about people who struggle with drug addiction. One of the teachings that celebrate recovery at our very own Capital City Rescue Mission is that our sinful habits flow from our hurts and our hang-ups, that the center of addiction is pain. And rather than turn to God to deal with the pain, we turn to something else to try and be for us what only God can be. Now, praise the Lord, we have groups like Celebrate Recovery. It's a godly ministry. God's doing great things there. Let's bring it a little closer to home. King's Chapel, as Pastor Lou mentioned earlier, is a church of community groups. Is your community group safe for conversations about the messy and the awkward, for the struggling saint? If it's not, or you had to hesitate and think about it, you might be prejudiced against those who are far away. But it's also possible to be prejudiced against those who are near. For example, I grew up in the church. I grew up hearing the gospel from my parents. I came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior at an early age. Church has always been an essential part of my life. That debate happened long ago. I was going to church. (laughs) It's always been essential. I learned to read and study the Bible. I learned to pray. I learned our history and our songs, and I wrestled with doubts about the faith before some of you were even Christian. I got to see what a Christian marriage and family looked like. There's a lot to be thankful for. But it's also created some particular challenges in my life, particularly a tendency to downplay the seriousness of sin. Because people like me grew up in environments where morality is emphasized more, we don't tend to have as many spectacular sins. You know, like I've never stabbed a person came close. 
My sister can testify to this, that she's probably wanted to stab me at, one, at least once or twice. Never stolen a wallet, maybe a penny though. Never smoked, didn't have sex before marriage. Struggled with porn, but frankly, so did what felt like half of young Christian men I knew at the time. So to the average person, I didn't seem like much of a sinner, and therefore not someone who needed the gospel. And that attitude can sneak into our evangelism easily. Because let's be honest, it's easy to take the gospel to people who look like sinners. People in jail, and addicts on the street, and porn stars, and gluttons, members of the political party that we happen to hate. I'll let you fill in your politician of choice. It's easy to see how they need the gospel. Because in our minds, they can be toxic, screwed up, and in the case of some, downright evil people. Of course they need Jesus. But what we need to understand is that family with the husband and wife who've been faithfully married for 40 years, who have four kids and a cat and a dog and a mortgage, also need Jesus just as much as the porn star. They are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Evangelism that's rooted in prejudice will have us running from either side, either ignoring those near or ignoring those far. But if we understand the scope of mission, that the gospel is for those near and far, inside and outside, we are freed from an evangelism rooted in prejudice. Lastly, we come to the final movement, the heart of mission, verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I've called this movement the heart of mission. Why? Because everything up till now depends on this passage. There are many people in the world who are eager and unashamed. There are many people out there who believe their messages have the power to change the world. There are many people who will invite all kinds of you know, persons to come to their community. What sets the Christian message apart? And it's set apart by the fact that the gospel alone speaks to the heart of our sin and the heart of our salvation. Look at our verse 17 at the beginning. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, if the answer to the gospel, or the answer of the gospel, is righteousness, that means that our fundamental issue is that we're not righteous or to bring the language up to the 21st century, it means that we are a jacked-up, screwed-up, wicked, toxic, evil people. And contrary to what society believes, our fundamental issue is not money or power or community or education, climate change, systemic racism, cancel culture and over-large government, China, the Taliban, or student debt. These can certainly be problems. Many of them are problems, but they are not the problem. The fundamental problem is that we are not righteous. And you know how I know this? Because if I think we were given the chance to be known by everyone or to hide, we would all choose to hide to cover up the darkness inside our hearts. Think about it. What if everything you ever thought, everything you've said, everything you've ever done were put on display for everyone to see? What if your friends knew the things you had said against them or what you would gossip to another person? What if you had to say the first thing that popped into your mind without any filter or restriction? What if we could see the darkest fantasies that crawled around inside your mind? I think we fear to be known, and so we hide. 
just like humanity has been hiding ever since the beginning of time. Think back to Genesis chapter 3 in the fall. The first thing that our parents, Adam and Eve, observe about the fallen world is that they're naked. Now, up till now, that hasn't been a problem. There's been nothing to hide. But now that they've sinned and guilt is weighing on them, they feel exposed. And so when they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they run behind trees and try to make garments of fig leaves to cover their exposure. And humanity has been running ever since trying to find something to cover up our guilt and our shame. So we cover up our hearts. We lie to other people. We lie to ourselves. And we'll put up fronts and charades to try and make up for our hearts. And we'll seemingly look good. We'll seemingly act good. But while we might be able to deceive people around us, and we may be able to deceive ourselves, nothing will ever make up for the fact that one day we're going to stand face to face before the Lord God Almighty, who's the judge of the secrets of the hearts of men. And on that day, every deception will fall, and every lie will be exposed. And on that day, we're not going to be able to hide the fact that none of us, not one of us, are righteous. But this is where the gospel speaks. The passage says that a righteousness has been revealed. But it's not a self-righteousness, a if I obey the rules and I do enough good things, I'll be a good person. And contrary to what Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life, Islam's you know, five pillars, Buddhism's eightfold path, and whatever other nonsense self-help has been peddling on their bookshelves, righteousness can never come by obedience to rules. We can't work our way out of brokenness. But Romans 3.21 says about this righteousness that has been manifested apart from the law though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This means that the righteousness that's come has not come in the form of a principle to be obeyed. It's come in the form of a person to be adored. It's not a righteousness of our own. It's the righteousness of God. And that righteousness is exactly what we need. Since we can't fix ourselves or or cover up the guilt in our hearts, we need a substitute to stand in our place. And we can't get one of our friends or someone else to do it because we're all sinners. We have our own issues to deal with. But because Jesus is the very righteousness of God, he has no sins to pay. He can step into our place, and at the cross, he does precisely that. At Calvary, the guilty was treated as innocent, and the innocent was treated as guilty. Everything that was due to me is given to him. Everything due to him is given to me. Jesus is condemned that I could be forgiven. Jesus experiences the wrath of God that I might experience the love of God. Jesus is cast off that I could draw near. He dies that I might have life. He bears what is rightfully mine, my sin and my punishment. I bear what is rightfully his, his righteousness and acceptance. And so when the Father sees me, he doesn't see my dark and sinful heart. He doesn't see my past. He doesn't see everything I've ever said and done wrong. He doesn't see my arrogance or my lust. He doesn't see my frustrations or my laziness. He sees nothing less than the righteousness of his own beloved Son. And because my salvation has been won so firmly and securely by Jesus alone, the next part of the verse is natural that the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith. If Jesus does it all, and I contribute nothing, then the only thing I come to God with is faith. 
Because faith is fundamentally a posture of, I can't do this. I can't do this. It's a statement of weakness. It's an acknowledgement that I need to rely on another person. It's the only posture you can come to a Savior with. Because if you could contribute something, you wouldn't need a Savior. You need a helper. You need a coach. You need an improvement. But you don't need a Savior. The only posture you can come to a Savior with is by faith. And the passage continues that this righteousness of God has not only been revealed by faith, it's revealed for faith. Meaning the same way you begin the gospel, by trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it's the same way that you continue. There's no point where it becomes faith plus something else. It's not faith and the Eucharist. It's not faith and charity. It's not faith and a certain level of theological knowledge. It's not faith and kick a few habits before God lets you in. It's not faith and vote a certain political party. It's not faith plus anything. The gospel is revealed by faith, for ongoing faith, meaning what you start, you don't stop. And this isn't some new idea. When Paul writes that the righteous shall live by faith, he's quoting the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, who's promising that the evil people will fall, but the righteous shall live by faith. It's not a New Testament invention. It's rooted in the Old Testament. This is how everyone comes to the Messiah, by faith in Jesus. This is the heart of mission, a gospel that speaks to the heart of our sin and the heart of our salvation. And what does it mean for us? It means we're freed from an evangelism rooted in self-centeredness. I think so often we can refuse to evangelize because we feel that we got baggage. We got to fix ourselves, or at least deal with our major issues. And so if we feel like a hypocrite, if we're still struggling with ongoing sin, if we're sharing the gospel with someone like family who knows us at our worst, we can often become really hesitant. We can't share the gospel until we get our life in order. But if we grasp that the gospel is about how God has become our substitute, the innocent for the guilty, that the guilty would walk free, we'd understand we're not here to rep ourselves. I'm not here to tell you how Joshua Baker has worked so hard to pull his life into order, and guess what? So can you. No, I'm here to tell you Joshua Baker is a wretched sinner who deserves nothing less than hell, but that God, who is rich in love and mercy and grace and kindness, has shown compassion to sinners like you and me. I'm not here to talk about how great I am. I'm here to talk about how great he is. Look at our God. Look at how great and awesome Jesus Christ is. Who is like our God? So when we give into fear that says, I can't share the gospel because I have baggage, what we're essentially communicating is that we think the gospel is about us. But the problem is we all got baggage. We're all sinners in need of salvation. Our job is not to represent ourselves. Our job is to represent God and show how great and awesome he has been to wretches like us. The heart of mission is that the gospel speaks to the heart of our sin and the heart of our salvation, and that's what makes it distinct. And it frees us from an evangelism rooted in self-centeredness. Each of these themes builds into the other. We are eager and unashamed because the gospel is the power of God to save, specifically anyone, both near and far, inside and outside. And it can speak to anyone because it speaks to the problem for everyone. No one's righteous. No one's a good person. But a righteousness has come, not in the form of a principle to be obeyed, but in a person to be adored. 
a person who has stood in my place, who has lived the life I was called to live and died the death I was called to die. And because he pays it all, I have no sin left to pay. I am free. And because he lives, I too shall live with him in glory. And what can we do now but make him known? What can hinder us? Mission and evangelism should not be words that cause us to feel guilty and ashamed for having failed to share the gospel. Mission and evangelism are words of privilege. We get to tell anyone and everyone how good God has been to us. Amen? Amen. He's been good to me. He's been good to you. And if you don't know his goodness toward you, that he is able to save you no matter how far you've gone, today can be the day everything changes. If you've forgotten that goodness in an endless cycle of duty and obligation, guilt and shame, today can be the day everything changes. And that's what brings us to the table. As the band comes up, we're going to prepare our hearts to celebrate communion. Because communion is God's gift to a weary and struggling saint. It's the gospel made visible. It's a way to re-experience the gospel as a community. It's an invitation for the weary and struggling saint to bring all of our sins and guilt before the presence of God and ask for his forgiveness. And then it invites us to experience the assurance of God's forgiveness. As we partake of the bread, we remember the body of Jesus, crucified for us as the atonement for our sins, and that the death he died, he died to sin once for all, and I am now crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. As we partake of the cup, we remember the blood that was shed on our behalf, that sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. And as we feast at God's table, we're not merely partaking of bread and juice. Jesus is spiritually present with us here in this, feeding us not just with physical food, but with grace from above, spiritual strength to face the day as we serve him on mission. So we're going to spend some time in silence and pray and repent of our sins, and the band will play as we prepare to go to the table. When you're ready, come up the outer aisles and take the elements with you back to your seat and um, go up the inner aisle. And after the song and everyone's received the bread and cup, I'll come back up and I'll lead us to partake together. There are separate pieces of bread and cup or the prepackaged, your choice. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we love you. We're glad you're here, but we would ask that you'd refrain from taking communion. This is a meal for the family of God. If you want to know more about joining that family, talk to myself or one of the pastor elders. Let's spend some time in prayer.